I hope your hearts have been prepared to worship and to hear God's word. Um, it's a blessing when the songs and the congregational singing goes hand in hand with the text. And uh, the song that the ladies just sang certainly does that. So thank you very much. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. That's where we will be today. Psalm 8. So it's a privilege to come and preach the word to you all this Sunday morning. Um, as you know, Pastor Tim is away. And uh, the past several weeks, Pastor Kent and Pastor Steve preached from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And I'm teaching from Psalm 8. And so you get a dose of psalms while Pastor Tim's away, and when he comes back, he'll be back in Romans. I hope uh, they will be a blessing to you. Psalm chapter 8. Before we look at that text, I want to read you a quotation from Carl Sagan, who's the scientist uh, probably better known for his Cosmos miniseries. Um, he asked this question, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet, of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. I, I'm a collection of water, calcium, and organic matter called Carl Sagan. And you are a collection of almost identical molecules with a different collective label. So how's that for a cheery word after all of the hymns that we just sang? <laughs> but I'm gonna make a bold prediction. If you've flown on an airplane any time recently, I bet you thought something a little similar. Maybe not the whole chemical composition I'm made up of water and calcium. But as you've taken off from Cleveland Hopkins Airport, as you're ascending, you're looking out the window, and maybe your eyes catch one of those vehicles driving on 480, and you trace one of them, and then you see a bunch of them, and then you see just how many there are, and you think, well, there's somebody inside that vehicle making it go. And then you think there's a lot of somebody's inside those vehicles making it go. And then as you get higher and higher, you see more and more. And they get smaller and smaller, and you see more and more. And you realize, wow, I'm really small, and this earth is really big. And as you reach you know, a kind of cruising altitude of whatever, 1,000 feet, and you see the landscape, and you see maybe a county, or you see the expanse of you know, part, a portion of a state, and you realize, you know what, I'm only seeing a small glimpse of this little state in this big country, on this bigger continent, on this bigger hemisphere, on this bigger globe, in this part of the solar system, in this little galaxy, in this universe. And then you kind of zoom back to me, and you ask the question, so does God care what I read on my Kindle? <laughs> I mean, I'm one of a hundred people on this plane. I'm one person on this little section of this planet. I mean, there's seven billion people. And then, I don't know about you, but where my thoughts go or where they have gone is, you know, as I'm looking down from the airplane thinking, so if I were the President of the United States, everyone down there would know who I am. And they'd probably have a strong opinion of me. <laughs> and they would. But in about 100 years, that's going to change. I mean, honestly, who was the President in 1917? It was World War I, that's about all I know. 
But who is, I don't know, he was one of the most powerful men in the world at the time, but I can't remember him. And in 100 years, the people are going to be hard-pressed to remember who the president is right now. My point is this. We're small, like really, 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 really small as individuals. And does it ever cross your mind, okay, God, do you even care? Not, not the question, do you care because hardship has taken over our life. That's certainly a layer of this. But God, why do you care? I mean, I am one little blip on this globe. Why are you mindful of me, of us, as man? That's the question that the psalm writer in Psalm 8 is going to ask. He does ask. And by God's grace, we'll be able to answer. So in the next 30 to 35 minutes, all of these existential questions will be answered definitively. We're going to tackle them, and you'll walk away just completely settled, never struggling with them again. I doubt that. <laughs> but at the same time, these questions are asked by more than just atheists like Carl Sagan. They're asked by men like King David. What is man that you are mindful of him? and mankind that you give him notice. Seriously. Especially when we consider the heavens, the sky, the expanse. When we, in our 21st century technology, are able to understand just how far it goes out there. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, let's read Psalm 8. And by God's grace, we're going to be able to answer that question. Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, our maj how majestic is your name in all the earth. Before we go further, let's pray. God, your name is majestic in the earth. And we come here corporately so that you might be pleased with our worship. You have created us to worship. And so as we study your word, may we do more than just engage our mind, but Lord, would we bow our knee and would we worship you as we study who you are and as we study who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just bring out two points here from this passage this morning. First of all, through God's creation, what you've sung about, through God's creation, God reveals his majesty to us. God reveals his majesty to us through his creation. And we see this right at the very beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. God's greatness can be seen in the vastness of creation. I don't know if your mind goes to Psalm 19. But Psalm 19, verse 1, starts with, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's a sense to where God's creation reveals just how great he is. I mean, we all have our Grand Canyon stories. You know, those ones where we're standing in front of the Grand Canyon or we're in front of some majestic point in nature and we see it and we realize this isn't just accidental. I mean, this, someone had to have done this. And as Christians, we see that and we marvel at the Creator. God has done this. God is a vast, powerful God. And we're told in God's Word that at some point in every human being's existence, at some point, man is able to understand this at some level. Because Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For the invisible things of God, of him, are clearly seen being understood by what's been made, even his eternal power in Godhead. What does that tell us? That tells us that at some point, it might, be, it might not be the entirety of his life, but at some point, man can understand God's power or at least recognize God's power and the fact that he is God. That is true. And we can see that. But not only does God use the vastness of his creation, God also uses the frailty of his creation. Look at verse 2 in Psalm 8. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. Now, if you read that verse and you think, what is he talking about? That's a great question. There's a lot of debate as to what exactly he is talking about. In fact, at the very beginning, it says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Your translation may say you've established praise. And what David, the writer here, is saying is that, yes, we see his majesty, we see God's majesty in the stars and the expanse of creation, but we can also see a glimpse of his majesty in a baby and in a child. And what that child, what that baby is doing actually reveals God's strength. You say, what in the world does that look like? All right, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at a couple different passages, but not for long. Matthew chapter 21. So in Matthew 21, the very beginning of this chapter, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. People are waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he goes from there and cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple. Obviously, the Pharisees, they're very upset. Not only does Jesus cleanse the temple, but we see in verse 14, the blind, the lame come to him in the temple, and Jesus is healing them. So if Jesus had any, if there was any question of his authority to cleanse the temple, he kind of showed his authority by healing the infirmed. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And look at what Jesus says. He quotes Psalm 8, 2. Jesus said to him, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? What Jesus is doing is rebuking the Pharisees because they didn't understand what they claimed to be experts of, which was the Old Testament. 
Looking at Psalm 8, 2, from the mouth of nursing, of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength or you've established praise. That God can use the power of His creation to reveal His majesty, but He can also use the praise of simple children, even the babbling of little infants, to declare just how powerful He is. Just how great He is. I mean, think of it. When we have children up here on Easter or Father's Day or Mother's Day, one of those events, and they're singing praise, do you know that at some level, that's a rebuke to those in the audience who don't know Christ? I mean, think of that. Think of four, five, six-year-old children singing God's praise. And perhaps some of you who sit stubbornly opposed to that God of creation. And yet God uses the weakness of children to establish praise. And by God's grace, the family of God sees that, resonates with it, and praises God as well. You see, the Pharisees, instead of rebuking the children, should have been leading the children. Rather than calling out, telling Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They should have joined along in chorus. And yet they were stiff-necked against him. God can use creation to declare his majesty, but he can also use the simplicity of children to declare his majesty. Now, that being said, just because God has revealed himself in creation, just because his majesty has been revealed through creation, does not mean that all our responsibility is is to acknowledge God and his existence. Okay? It's not the same as submitting to God. So we learned in our study, back when Pastor Tim was going through Romans 1, that in Romans, there are those who did acknowledge God's eternal power. That they clearly saw it, and yet what did they do? They rejected it, much like the Pharisees did that we just spoke of. And so God doesn't simply want us to read verses 1 and 2 and say, yes, we see God in the heavens. It would be kind of like when you leave here, you, you get in your car, you drive down the street, you can acknowledge that law exists, even though you might not necessarily have read a law book. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, so when you get in your car, you pull out of the driveway, you turn, okay? As you turn, there are things that govern what you're doing. There's lines on the road. There's some in the middle, there's some on the side. They keep you there. Sometimes there's two lines in the middle that say, don't go in that other lane. Sometimes they're dotted and they say, well, if the person in front of you is going too slow, you can go around do it safely. There's little signs on the side of the road with numbers on them that says you can go so fast. And if you're on Bellflower, you're wishing it said 35 instead of 25. Okay? Right? There's even a glowing box right by St. John Vianney's that blinks at you when, when you're not. Right? There's signs that give order. Now, I could see those, or you could see those as you drive, and you could acknowledge they exist. However, that doesn't make you a law-abiding citizen. You actually have to obey those signs. Just because you have lines on the road doesn't mean that you're actually going to drive within those lines. You could go on the other side, but things will end badly for you. Listen, just because we see God 
revealed in creation, just because mankind sees God revealed in his creation, doesn't mean that man has a, has a, a redeemed relationship with his God. Just acknowledging God exists is not it. It's bowing the knee and submitting to him. That's what God demands. And when we simply look at creation, honestly, we're left with an enormous, magnificent God and an insignificant human being. Look at verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This wasn't a sinful tendency by David to wonder about his standing for God. You know, when, when you read the, when, when you listen to the quote by Carl Sagan and you think of his observation, that's not a wrong observation in essence. I mean, from a scientific standpoint. Yet this view is not where the psalmist ends, where David ends. Instead, God shows man his value. You have made him, verse 5, a little lower than God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Instead of seeing man as minuscule, God has given man great importance, especially in comparison to his creation. And this is the role of what we would call special revelation. Creation, we would call general revelation. But general revelation, creation, is not enough to save man from his sin. Seeing God in the firmament, seeing his splendor, is enough to condemn man. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. So as David continues in verses 5 through 8, we see the role of special revelation. Through creation, God has re revealed his majesty. But through God's word, God reveals man's dignity or his significance to him. Through his word, God reveals our significance. What are we doing here? Why does God care? Look in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than God. Now, if you have a different translation, maybe the King James Version or maybe the NIV, your translation says something a little bit different. It says, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. Okay? That word for God can also be translated angels. In fact, throughout the Bible, there's quite a number of appearances of this particular word, and it's translated a different way. When you had translators interpret this word as angels, really it was to preserve God's holiness or otherness. And so when you have the statement, you have, been made, you have made man a little lower than the angels, there's a clear distinction between God and man. Yet as we go through this, I think that we shouldn't necessarily blunt what is trying to be said here in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than, in our translation that we're using, God. And you have crowned him with glory and majesty. In order to understand this a little bit further, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2.
Anytime you read the Old Testament, it's always nice when the New Testament quotes and explains it. It's a wonderful guide for interpretation. And that's what we're going to have here. Hebrews chapter 2. If you've studied the book of Hebrews on your own, the theme is the superiority of Christ. And the author of Hebrews starts off by describing how Jesus is superior to the angels. And in chapter 2, he starts off, uh, and he starts in verse 5, he says, For he, Jesus, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, and here's where we see the quotation of Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you, that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So when we see this translation in Psalm chapter 2 and verse uh, 5, you have made him a little lower than God. Why is it that in the New Testament they translate it, you have made him a little lower than the angels? And the fact of the matter is, is that the argument here is pointing to Christ's superiority over angels. But what we're going to see is man's significance in light of all of that. Let's keep reading. For in subjecting all things to him, I'm in the middle of Hebrews 2.8, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while, a little lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Basically what we have here is Jesus being a son of man, coming to earth as God, and paying the price for sin by suffering on the cross. As a man. Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's those of you who know Christ, are all from one Father. For which reason, He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Look at that. If you have been sanctified, you are called brethren. Or sisterin. You are part of the family of God. Verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. That's key. When Jesus died on the cross, did he die for the fallen angels? According to this, it says, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That's not just Jews. That's those who have the faith of Abraham. Therefore, he had to, make, be, he had to be made like his brethren, that's human beings, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, you say, okay, what does this have to do with Psalm 8? Because there's a lot of language I don't necessarily get. Follow the line of reasoning here. David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you would regard him? And he responds, having been given instruction by God, you have been made a little lower than God, a little lower than the angels, whichever way you translate it, okay? And you've been granted authority and power. And you've had all things put underneath your feet. Mankind has To which we would say, Okay, where do we see that? I mean, man has that? He does? Because in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 8, the writer says the same thing. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. It's kind of like a, a reality contradicting what's told in Scripture. But then you have Jesus, who as fully God and fully man, offered himself and put the greatest enemies of mankind under his feet. What are the greatest enemies of man? Sin, death, the devil, the fear of those things. Jesus has conquered those things. And in doing so, those who he redeemed, guess what? They are his brothers and sisters. They are his family members. And not only that, He's more than just that. But we have the promise of when we see him, 1 John chapter 3 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That doesn't mean that we will be God. But we will be in a moral state of perfection. No longer underneath sin, death. Christ has accomplished that for you. We have the same Father, verse 11. It says, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And His sacrifice for us has paid a full atonement for our sin since He tasted death for everyone. So through God's Word, God reveals our significance. The lengths to which Jesus went so that we could be made right with God. And we do have, going back to Psalm chapter 8, if we could turn back there, we do have a superior standing in the created world. Man has a position that is superior to the animal kingdom. James chapter 3, when, it's talking, when James is talking about the tongue, he says no one can tame the tongue. And he makes an aside, he says, you know, all the beasts of the field have been tamed by man. You know, it's just kind of an understood so there is a superior place in creation that man has been given. And, you know, we see this. I think common grace enables us to, to be able to, to see this and understand this. Because we understand that a distinguishing factor between man and animal is what we saw even at the beginning of chapter 8. Where, where man can look at the heavens and ponder his existence. You know, when, when you hear that, that you know, animals are really, really intelligent, I'm sure they are, you know, the, like the most intelligent, I think, is the dolphin. You know, the dolphin always comes up. You know, it's just really intelligent. When it comes up for air and it, you know, blow a hole, it doesn't look up in the stars and ponder its existence. It doesn't do that. At least not that we know of. And if it did, it didn't do a very effective way of it, with its squeaks to communicate that to us. But man does that. 
Man has a superior place in nature, and he's been given that by God. Now, what is this passage, what this passage does, and what so many in our world, what this passage does, if I can put it this way, is it really accomplishes what so many people in the world are looking for, and that is significance and dignity. Significance and dignity. What do I mean by that? Well, by showing us our standing in God's eyes, God's word shows us our intrinsic self-worth. Meaning this, when I read God's word, I realize just how valuable I am in God's sight. I realize just how valuable mankind is in God's sight. This is a silly illustration, but it illustrates the point. If I go home, and while I'm driving home, I hit a skunk, the thing that will upset me the most is that when I walk into my garage tomorrow morning, I will still smell that skunk. I may, for a moment, lament the fact that I took an animal's life with my vehicle. But I'm more concerned about my car stinking. And I think you would be too. If I'm driving home and a person walks in front of my car and I hit them, I don't think my primary concern would be how my car smells. I mean, that's horrific. There's a level of just ghastliness. We may have taken a life, a human life. We understand that. When we see a dead animal on the side of the road, we don't throw funerals, we don't call the police, we don't call 911. But if it were a human being, we would stop traffic. There's a level of dignity, even for someone who no longer has life, one who was alive, a human being. They have dignity. They have worth. We recognize that. That's very simplistic. It's very basic. But not only is it basic just from a value standpoint, it's also intrinsic to our behavior so that God cares about what we do and how we treat other individuals. So that my treatment, not only of just life in general, but life specific, is reflective of that reality. So that, for example, a person of a different race, of a different ethnicity, of a different culture, has just as great standing in God's eyes as I do. And to treat them differently is ultimately to go against God's created order. There is no place for that. I want to use another illustration, and I'm going to kind of take you back to high school English class. All right? So there's a play written in the 20th century called Death of a Salesman. It was written by Arthur Miller. And the main character, his name's Willie Loman. And Willie Loman is an older man who's worked for the same company for about 40 years, and he's reaching the end of his career. And he's a traveling salesman. And you can tell throughout the play, dementia is starting to setting in, starting to set in. He's not the salesman that he used to be. He's a guy that's traveled many years for his company. And so he goes into his boss, and, he, and he's talking to his boss and asking if he could just you know, maybe stop going on the road as much. He wants to just stay back in, the, back in the office, and he's willing to take a pay cut. And he's talking to his boss, and this boss was a man that he himself uh, actually saw as a baby. In fact, his boss, 
His boss's dad was Willie's boss to start off with. So Willie remembers this guy coming in as a baby. And Willie even helped name him, suggested a name. And now this little baby grew up to a man and he's his boss. And Willie's appealing to him saying, I remember when you were this young. And, and, and his boss is like, no, I just can't. I can't you know, have you here. I just can't. He's like, no, okay, I'll do it for 40 bucks a week. No, I just can't, I can't. He's like, do you know how long I've worked for this company, Willie says. And he makes a powerful statement. He says, you can't eat the orange and throw away the peels. Man is not a piece of fruit. And in his career, that's what he felt like. The company had taken the orange, and now they were throwing away the peels. And he makes a plea to his dignity. Man is not a piece of fruit. Can I tell you, by extension, we treat man like a piece of fruit when we get caught up in the self-serving sins that make their dignity and their significance expendable. I can't think of another way where we treat human beings pieces of fruit to be thrown away than lust, sexual sin, and pornography. Because a human being is now a commodity to be consumed. That image is just that, an image on the screen. It's not a person who had a sixth birthday and got a My Little Pony. It's not a person who has a cousin who's dying. It's not a man or a woman who used to be tucked in by their parents. No, in fact, the more our society consumes it, the more we perpetuate this treatment of humanity. For every one person that's in that industry, there are dozens that are in a sex trafficking industry where they're treated like commodities. You know... Today, there's much talk about empowering people, empowering women. You know, we should be all for empowerment when God empowers them. That's exactly what Psalm 8 does. Their bodies belong to God. And they're not meant to simply be consumed, either mentally or physically. Not only that, but their significance and their identity is not tied to sexual behavior or their ability to track a mate. And, and being a husband and a father of three daughters, we cannot, women, if I could just address you, we cannot assign worth. Your worth has nothing to do with how good you think you look in a mirror or the size of your dress or clothing, the number on that tag. Why is it that we can look at Scripture and see this clearly, but when it translates into our daily lives, it doesn't compute, unless you have something like cancer? Why is it that we need something like cancer to remind us of the dignity of human life? Why? Let me use an illustration. So, there's a, a friend of ours that came, that brought her daughter, friend of several years actually, that brought her daughter to Grace Bible Soccer Camp just a few weeks ago. She's in her 30s, very healthy, very strong, yet recently diagnosed with cancer. And it needed to be treated quickly and aggressively. And so this individual went through 17 different trials, I guess that's what you call it, of chemotherapy. 
And obviously, going through that much chemotherapy, it's going to have an effect on the body. And yet, as we're sitting there talking to her, she's speaking of the grace of God. She's talking with her husband and her little child and watching her daughter play soccer. And I don't think there'd be a person in this room that would look at her and, and assign less value or attribute less significance to her because physically she doesn't appear the way she used to. She's fighting cancer. She's a fighter. And if anything, she has more dignity. But yet we kind of have, as, as creatures, and, and, and when we're... When we live selfishly, we can create this, this disconnect to where we have the dignity of the human being on the one side, but then we have the commodity of the human being on the other side. To where the respect or the honor that we give is based purely on things that are short-lived and temporary and, frankly, fleeting. The Bible grants dignity to humanity, to human beings, to our bodies. And it cares. God cares about that. God cares about you. So by showing us our standing in God's eyes, God shows us our intrinsic self-worth. But also by showing the importance of Christ coming in the flesh, like we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, God's word shows us the value of physically being with one another. So if you think about it, for centuries, God communicated to man through prophets, through angels. But there was a time, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, we read in John chapter 1, where God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we are thankful that, it did, that he did. As a result, there is a prioritization that I see God giving us as human beings to make with other human beings, actually being flesh with flesh, person with person. In other words, it's good to be together. It's good to be with you as a human being. It's different. Is it? Well, maybe I should ask. Isn't it different when we see each other on screens? That's not a bad thing. But isn't there a significance of actually being with that person? I mean, there's a reason why Pastor Tim is in Africa right now. We could have saved quite a bit of money. We could have saved him a lot of time by putting him on a screen. Couldn't we? But why is he there? God's opened a door and an opportunity. And I know our brothers and sisters in Christ over there in South Africa are benefiting from Pastor Tim's presence, just like you and I will, Lord willing, next week when he's back. Right? If God wanted to, he could have communicated truth from heaven as he had centuries before. But no, Jesus came, God in the flesh. And there's so, so there's something different and unique about being with other saints physically and worshiping together. We see that in this life, just being with one another. And we also see it in the life to come. I really feel this is why the physical resurrection of Jesus and our physical resurrection is so emphasized and so important to what we believe as Christians. I mean, Job said, in my flesh, I will see him. You and I will be face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that give you hope? And when we see the stars and we go through trouble or go through, uh, we're, we're discouraged and we think God is way up there and not down here, 
Why are you mindful? Are you mindful? We have the promise of how God has created things to be and what our significance is in that place. And so God's majesty, man's significance, ultimately point us to our ultimate purpose in existence. And if you don't get anything else from this, this is what I want you to get. It's the very beginning and the very end of the chapter. Okay? David didn't stutter. This was really, really important for us to get. What's he say? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We were created to worship. We were created to worship. God's majesty, man's dignity, ultimately point to your reason for existence. You were made to worship. And the fact is, you worship something. Every man is a worshiper. Even Carl Sagan is a worshiper. Okay, so that quote that I gave you at the very beginning, let me finish that quote. You know, the whole thing about, you know, I'm water and calcium and this collective pool of molecules, this, you know, this little pocket of our, this is Carl Sagan, okay? He says, some people find this idea as demeaning to human dignity. For myself, I find it elevating that our universe permits evolution of molecular machines as intricate and subtle as we are. So you know what Carl Sagan does? He fulfills Romans chapter 1. He fulfills it by rejecting the creator and substituting the creation. But without special revelation, what is he to do? Without his eyes in God's word, what would you conclude? That being said, if you're in this room, ultimately there's two types of people in this room. There are those who are worshipers, true worshipers of God, and there are those who are not worshipers of God. If you have heard the children sing praises to God and been stiff-necked, if you have seen the splendor of the heavens, if you have been with other believers, flesh to flesh, person to person, and you've seen the change that God has made in them and you've rejected, would you today turn from your sin and place your faith in the God-man? The one who came to save you from sin and fear and death and the devil? Those are real things. And the truths of those will echo into eternity even if you reject how sad would it be to hear the children's voices singing God's praise as you suffer in eternity in hell? And if you are a worshiper of God, if you are one who is trusted in Christ, then your lifestyle of worship should reflect, first of all, acknowledging of God's majesty. Him being the Lord of your life. But then also it should acknowledge the dignity and the significance of those human beings around you. That they simply don't exist for you to advance. But they are either saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, or potential saints. Opportunities for you to share the hope, share the dignity, share the significance that you have found through God's word. This is such an encouraging message for our world that wants to understand significance, wants to understand why am I here. We're here.
to worship God and our significance, there's nothing greater that can be found than that. So it's incumbent on us to share it with them. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your creation. Thank you for your word. Lord, we of all people are so blessed, so privileged to uh, sit and learn and listen, having what you've revealed to us be made so clear. We thank you for your spirit that clarifies truth. God, if there's any here that don't know you as Savior, that are living life how they think they should, yet living life outside of forgiveness, and God, use your word. Would they be saved? Lord, I pray that for the souls coming this, this coming week to Grace Bible Day Camp, the children that are going to hear the gospel. Lord, may those who speak the gospel this week be clear, may it be real in their lives. And Lord, would we see souls come to know you. Lord, help us as um, citizens here of Northeast Ohio, Lord, as we interact with those in our community. God, give us an awareness that these are souls that will spend somewhere forever, that you have a special place, that they have a special place in your eye. Lord, that... Um, We've been called to be ambassadors, to speak that hope to them. God, may we do it effectively. And may we live in light of the fact that we will worship you forever. The hope and the joy that that brings, God, would it sustain us through difficulty? Would it sustain us through doubt? God, would you be magnified ultimately by a worship-filled lifestyle? In Jesus' name, amen.